When you've entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and settle settle in it. Take some of the first fruits all of, of all that you produce from from the soil. And oh gosh, hold on. Let's try this without the glasses. Okay. Take your time. Okay. Take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his, for his name and say to the priest in the office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our forefathers to give us. Priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, sorry, Aramean, Aramean, and went down into the and went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror, with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring you the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. And you will, and you and the Levites Mm -hmm. and the aliens among you shall rejoice at all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. Amen. Thank you, Chris. (laughs) Brother Tim, you pull up that video. Got a little video to share with y'all. As we, before we get started. <laughs> I suppose you think that was terribly clever. Come on, Gandalf. Did you see their faces? There are many magic rings in this world, Bilbo Baggins, and none of them should be used lightly. If it's just a bit of fun. Oh, you're probably right, as usual. You will keep an eye on Frodo, won't you? Two eyes. As often as I can spare them. I'm leaving everything to him. What about this ring of yours? Is that staying too? Yes, yes. Send an envelope over there on the mantelpiece. No. Wait, it's... here in my pocket. <laughs> isn't that... isn't that odd now? Yeah. After all, why not? I think you should leave the ring behind, Bilbo. Is that so hard? Well, no. And yes. Now I 
close to it. I don't feel like parting with it. It's mine. I found it. It came to me. Who's managed to get angry? Well, if I'm angry, it's your fault. It's mine. Precious. It's been called that before, but not by you. Oh, my business isn't of yours when I do with my old things. I think you've had that ring quite long enough. You want it for yourself? Remember, Baggins! Do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. to pick up <laughs> other things oh, don't be so close are hard to put down even if they are easy to pick up like Bilbo and the ring of power the little ring that he had there no doubt was very easy to pick up it wasn't a heavy item or a big item but it was very difficult for him to let go of that ring right, we would think it that letting go of something would be the easier task, right? We think naturally that maybe that would be the thing that would be much easier for us. But strictly from a weight standpoint, most of the time letting go of something is easier. But from another standpoint, maybe letting go is harder. I remember uh, working in waterproofing when I was down in North and South Carolina. Lots of times we would install these things called French drains. I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with French drain. I don't know if they do that up here very much. But down there, um, basically you'd have a, it's a you know, perforated pipe that would go around the foundation and you know, you'd put gravel on top of it and a little like silt fabric and it would keep the dirt off of it and the water would come down and hit the you know, waterproofing on the wall and go into the pipe or whatever and drain out. 
Well, in these subdivisions on the outskirts of Charlotte, the lots were large. I mean, not as large as you know a lot of the lots here in Vermont. We've got acres and acres, but for Charlotte, these were bigger lots. And sometimes these houses, these foundations, might be 100 or even 200 yards off of the road. And if it had rained a little bit that week or whatever, it was sloppy and nasty. And so getting the gravel for the French drain close to the foundation was quite a task. And the dump truck would pull up and lots of times it wouldn't be able to get into the job site because it was you know, bogged down in the mud or whatever. So it'd have to stay out on the road. And we'd have to take this two or four or six or eight or ten tons of gravel by hand over to the foundation wall, bucket by bucket, one at a time, sloshing through this mud and whatever, and it was unbelievable work. Well, it was kind of funny because this idea of picking up and letting go, you'd see the, these guys, a lot of them were um, foreigners, the little short guys, and uh, you know they worked hard as daylights. They'd pick up these buckets and they'd run over to the, to the foundation wall just eager to let go of these 60 or 80 pound buckets of gravel and they'd drop them and then you'd see them kind of coast back to the truck. You know, So the trip was really, really long, it felt like, going to the wall. But after you let the buckets go, it wasn't long enough getting back to the truck. So letting go of that gravel, obviously, was the easier task, right? Picking it up was the hard, the hard um, part. And that's the way it is in most cases, is it not? That the, uh, the picking up is usually the harder thing. But in reality, all human beings oftentimes struggle with letting go. It's the letting go that gives us the most trouble in life. Even when letting go seems, again, to require such little effort, when it would help us, when it would lead or heal us, be a good thing to let something go, we have great difficulty. Like Bilbo in the Ring of Power, we just can't let our precious thing go, whatever it is. Did you notice in that clip there, the Lord of the Rings clip, how hard the ring hit the floor? Did that stand out to you like a burden or a weight? Boom! Sometimes that initial impact is like that when you have to let something go. You feel it and it's hard and it hits the floor quite loudly. Sometimes that's what letting go is like. It's a big blow at first. But in the end, like Bilbo, we're better off, right? But most of the time, what keeps us from letting go is what? There's some idea behind letting it go. There's some, some lie, really, that's behind whatever it is that we're struggling with that keeps us holding on, preventing us from dropping it or putting down whatever it is. And I think that's maybe the lie that we need, whatever this thing is. That we can't survive without it. That we can't go on without whatever this thing is. Last week we talked a little bit about this lie at the end of the message for those of you who remember and how Satan is the father of lies and how he ruined the world really by presenting an idea to Eve in the garden way back in Genesis chapter 3. What was that idea that Satan proposed to Eve? If you remember that story. The idea was that there was this other thing outside of God that she needed. Or that God was trying to keep something from her, right? She sunk her teeth into that forbidden fruit and handed it to her husband and he did the same. And the world has never been the same. Ruin and misery have followed them and we live with it today. But again, what was the essence of that lie? What was at its core? 
you go back and look at the account, I'm going to read it for us from Genesis chapter 3. You begin to see what the heart of the lie was. It says this, Genesis 3, verse, uh, the first couple of verses there in the chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan suggested very subtly to her, to to Eve, that God did not have her best interest in mind. I think that was the lie. God, God's trying to keep something from you, Eve. That God was somehow depriving her. He presented the idea to Eve that maybe God was even lying to her. Did God really say that, Eve? And then she partook. Well, on the topic of Satan, um, many of you may be aware, um, we'll, we'll bring, come back full circle here to Satan and to the, to the issue at hand, but I wanted to make reference to this th- this morning because uh, I thought it was kind of funny and I want to give a nod of the hat to it, but Supreme Court Justice Scalia died on Friday. I don't know if you knew that or not, at the age of, of 79. Uh, he was appointed by Ronald Reagan. He was well known uh, in the words of the Independent Journal Review for his dry and blistering dissents and firm commitment to constitutional originalism. He was also a practicing Roman Catholic. And I found a series of quotes that embodied his style this morning that were quite humorous but quite sharp as well. One of them said this about Satan, in fact, and I thought it was very interesting. You're looking at me as though I'm weird. My God! Are you so out of touch with most of America, he writes, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so, so removed from mainstream America that you are appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history, and many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. <laughs> so not only is Satan real, which I you know, would heartily agree with what Scalia says, but he loves to lie to us. He loves to plant seeds of distrust inside of us towards God. Is God really out for my good in this right now? Whatever's happening in our lives. All throughout the Old Testament you see Israel struggling to trust God. Right after they're freed from bondage in Egypt, those of you who know the story, right? Joseph lands in Egypt in God's providence and they settle there and the people grow very, you know, massive and there's a multitude of Israelites there and a Pharaoh rises up and says, I'm going to oppress these people because they're too numerous and uh, he was scared they were going to overtake them or whatever. And for years and years they lived in slavery. Well, right after, you know, God calls Moses to go and free the people from Israel, what begins to happen on their way to the promised land in the wilderness? They start grumbling and bickering and doubting that God's out for their good after all these wonders and miracles that He's performed for them in the wilderness. And we think that's just amazing. But he starts to, they start to doubt God. They think maybe, is God going to do the things that He said He's going to do? Maybe God's lying to us or tricking us. 
And then what happens? They begin to even say, we should go back to Egypt. Remember that? In that story they say, what if we, it would have been better if we just stayed in Egypt. Right? And what happens? They struggle to let go. They can't let it go. This former life, these luxuries, these comforts maybe, even though they were slaves, they looked at those things like comforts compared to being in the wilderness with God. They didn't believe that it was better to be in the wilderness with God than to be slaves in Egypt. So they couldn't let go. Well, today's passage, what we're going to see, I think, or I hope, is the importance of of letting things go, of setting things down for God, of routinely giving back to God, maybe making sacrifices of some sort or being in the habit of giving to God, whether that's, you know, on a Sunday morning or whether that's some other way or serving your neighbor and your family or every day in, in little ways here and there, giving something practically to God. So Moses and the people of Israel, right? What's, what's going on here in Deuteronomy 26, which uh, Chris graciously read for us. In Deuteronomy 26, Israel has arrived at the edge of the promised land. And before they begin to, to enter, Moses says, you know what? I need to remind the people of all that's happened. And so what he does is for almost, it's like 20-something chapters, 26 chapters. Well, a little, little over 20. Starting in chapter 5, Moses recites the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. So you'll see if you go to Deuteronomy 5, the Ten Commandments are there again. And then for the next 20-ish chapters, what's he do? He explains them. Basically walks right through the Ten Commandments and he says, apply specific cases with each commandment. And he says, this is what this might look like in this situation or that situation. He's trying to convey more detailed, practical pieces of the commandments of God and give different cases and situations. The spirit of the law, if you will. So he goes into it again. So in our text today, we are right, we're in chapter 26, is at the tail end of these sermons that Moses is delivering to the people of Israel. In our text today, we're right on the, right almost at his conclusion to these sermons that he's given before the people are going to go into, into the promised land. And while we don't want maybe to elevate one aspect of God's commandments or laws over another, we don't want to do that, Maybe you could say that the final piece was rather important. Maybe there's something about that last note that God wanted to drive home to the people. And that's what, what our text is basically today, is these last words. Maybe because they were about to go take possession of the land, God felt the need to remind them about a few things. They were about to have a land flowing with milk and honey that was rich beyond anything they had known in generations past. God wanted to emphasize that they were not to be a people who hoarded. Don't hoard. This is not about you. okay? But be a generous people who give to the Lord and even to the sojourner. We don't read all the way to the end of the chapter, but if you were to read right after this, there's, there's commandments about the widow and the sojourner in Israel. And there's all these really fascinating and neat laws, like if you're out collecting the sheaves, right? And some of them fall to the ground, the Lord says, leave them. So that the widows or the sojourners can collect them as they walk along. Have compassion on these people. Don't store up your barns and fill them and fill them to the max. Leave some for people who have little. In verse 10, go look at verse 10 with me. This is kind of where I'm going with the, the idea in our message today. We're told 
that the people of Israel, once they inherit the land, are to tithe the first fruits of everything that they harvest to the Lord. The expression that is used here in verse 10 is set it down. Set it down, it says. They're to bring it to the central place of worship once they've entered the land. Again, they're not in the land in this particular passage. And settled it and begun to enjoy its fruits. They are to set it down before the Lord. It's an interesting way of expressing it. That it emphasizes this a couple times in our text. Set it down. It's no coincidence that this act here is connected with what? What happens in our passage right after the person comes before, before the priest and he recites what God has done and he sets his first fruits down what's he do after that he worships he worships and he rejoices the act here is not portrayed as a burden but a privilege after setting the items down one is to rejoice and worship in the presence of the Lord God what a picture for us this morning about giving and sacrificing for the Lord So the New York Times published an article in the middle of 2013 that said this. Right up front, very shocking couple of sentences. More people now die today of suicide than in car accidents each year. Other recent articles I've read suggest that this is still true today. And the World Health Organization is projecting that by the year 2020, someone will be committing suicide somewhere in the world every 20 seconds. We've known the pain of suicide right here in our, our own town recently, even right here in our own church in the last year and a half or so. We've known people that we loved and cared about who felt that there was no other option um, for themselves. Why? And I don't propose to have the answers. I'm not going to analyze every situation. I just can't do that. I can't read people's hearts. But a lot of these articles feel compelled, if you go and read online about this, to try and provide some answers. Why is this happening? Why the rise in suicides, especially amongst middle-aged men, is the biggest category increase in America anyways. And, but it's increasing across the board even amongst young people. Some people say it's because of economic troubles. A lot of men get to that age where they're 45, 55, 60, and they see they've worked their whole life and they have little to show for it. They can't even retire. What they have in retirement is is little, and they say, "Why, why bother? Some suggest it as economic difficulties. Others say prescription drugs. We're over-medicated, and many of these medications have side effects of suicidal thoughts and so on. But I I don't think that those are root causes. I think those are more layered a few layers up maybe. I think it's the same reason that maybe Valentine's Day um, is very hard or very empty or very difficult uh, for many of us. Maybe very lonely for many of us. Um, Maybe you've had a tragedy happen and I'm not suggesting that that was your fault or anything like that. But sometimes days like today are difficult and life is difficult because we make it about ourselves. Because we make life about me. We want to get the chocolates, right? And if we don't get those chocolates, I'm going to be bitter. I'm going to be upset. By golly, I'm going to make life miserable for somebody. They don't cut me some flowers today. We sit around waiting for others to do something for us, right? We try and fill ourselves up with ourselves. We want people to make a big deal out of us. But the problem is, we were made to make a big deal out of God. 
I love the first question and answer to the Westminster Catechism. Maybe some of y'all are familiar with this. Um, what is the chief end of man, it says. Or what is the purpose for man, which man was created, basically, is the, sort of the idea there. What is the chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We were made to give praise to God and enjoy Him. There's infinitely more joy to be found in worshiping God than in looking in the mirror. And our society staring in the mirror. And it's killing us, literally. Passages like the one we are looking at today in Deuteronomy 26 show us the solution. In a very real and practical way even, it shows us, it points us in the direction of maybe what life should be like. As we enter uh, the Lent season here, um, Kathy pointed this out, those of you who are here on Ash Wednesday got to get a taste of talking a little bit about what Lent was, um, the idea behind it. Many of you are probably familiar, but going into maybe some greater detail about uh, what the Lent season is. As we enter into Lent, we begin to think about our sin, begin to think about the cross of Christ. All of the evil powers in this world are going to be working against you because I'm going to suggest to you over and over and over that true life and satisfaction cannot be found in self or in this world. It can't be done. But that they can be found in God. Over and over again in the coming weeks, God is going to call you to deny yourself. This is a big part of what Lent is. God is going to call you to deny yourself, to give up things for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of having treasure in heaven. And all of hell is going to rage against you and say, Did God really say that? Did God really say that denying yourself will give you life? Did God really say that you don't need that, whatever that is, to be happy? Did He really say that? And all it took to thrust humanity headlong into thousands of years of misery was for that suggestion to be made to Eve. And her and her husband jumped right in. And here we are. Lent is a good time to pause and to think about this subject. About self-denial. About sacrifice. About giving things up. Laying it down before God. It's a perfect time to talk about these things together. As we take a good six weeks to prepare for the cross of Jesus Christ and for His resurrection, there are many things that are going to come up that make this particular time of the Christian calendar a prime time for renewal in your life, wherever you are, for spiritual renewal. That God will take you to a new height or to a new depth in your faith, bring you to a new level. Why? Why is Lent different? Why is, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, but why is Lent and Easter such a better time than maybe Advent and Christmas for renewal? What separates the two? Well, during Advent and Christmas, we focus on the gift. We focus on the cradle, the coming king, right? The baby in the manger. It's a time of year that even the world gets excited about, where our traditions overlap in large part with the world's values. Right? We get some gifts. We get a bunch of stuff and goodies, right? Who don't like that? We love that stuff, right? So the world has no problem jumping on the Christmas bandwagon. Hallelujah! Christmas is here, they'd say. But 
Maybe we don't care about the Christ behind it. During Lent, the opposite is true. We focus on death and human sin and all that is wrong with ourselves. We remind ourselves that we are broken and that life is not to be found on earth and in fact that we must at times reject the desires of the flesh in order to have real life. Lent is, in part, about deprivation. It's about setting things down for God. The great symbol of Lent is not the cradle, but the cross. During Lent, we were reminded of the very powerful words which Kathy mentioned in the, in the children's message of Jesus to Satan in the wilderness. Words which originally come out of the book we're in this morning, out of Deuteronomy, when he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God, Jesus said to the devil in the wilderness. That's not a popular message, is it? We don't have a million restaurants on every corner of every city in America because we like to deprive ourselves. No, we love to indulge in this country, right? We all know it. And we all do a little bit of that ourselves probably. But Lent is a time when we seek to say no, to abstain maybe from things that we normally would not. When we put our indulgences on hold, we seek to focus upon our need. It's a hard place, but it's a place that can lead to life in deeper faith. So now, okay, let's get back into our passage. Only a couple of minutes left here. Let's get back into our passage. Notice in verses 3 through 10, if you will, what the Israelite was to say to the priest. I'm not going to read the whole thing there, right? But he basically recites the history of Israel up to that point, does he not? In a few sentences. This is what happened. We descended from this guy who was enslaved and God came and freed us. We cried to the Lord. God came and freed us out of our oppression and He brought us to, out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He goes on with all these signs and He's brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey. That's the basic story, is it not? Up to that point. The Israelite was essentially to recite that all they had was the result of God's gracious provision. That's what the essence of what they were saying was. All that we are, all that we have, is because of God. God elected and chose my forefathers. Why? Who knows why these people, God set, set His love upon these people. We don't know. God did. And He said, go to this land and do this thing and do that and do this. And He delivered the people. It was all God is the point. Yahweh had chosen their forefathers. Yahweh delivered them from slavery. Yahweh brought them into the land flowing with good fruit. They were just giving back to God a little of what He had graciously given to them. Now listen to this. What does that sound like? What does that sound like? It sounds like the gospel. This is the sort of mini-gospel of the Old Testament, right? If you fast-forward to the New Testament, when Jesus arrives on the scene, we hear things that sound strikingly similar in the New Testament. He too tells us that our ancestors were chosen by God because in Him, in Jesus, we are children of Abraham by faith. Our ancestors, the same people, by faith. He tells us too that we were slaves, but not of Egypt. We were slaves of a much more sinister kind. Slaves to sin. But He came in power, did He not? And by mighty wonders delivered us and brought us up out of that slavery and set us free. He tells us too that we've inherited a land flowing with milk and honey, right? That He will faithfully bring us to that land. Just as He did Israel in the Old Testament. 
But of course, this land is coming, right? This is a, a coming promised land. Capital P, capital L. And in the New Testament, we find verses where Christians are being called what? The first fruits. Christians are called in several places in the New Testament the first fruits of salvation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Well, what are the first fruits here in Deuteronomy? What are they? The first fruits are those things dedicated to God. Those things given to God, they were special, they were set aside for the Lord's use. They were holy things, consecrated things. Only here in the New Testament, it's not just our crops that are spoken of. Or 10% of our wealth or whatever. It's all that we are. We are the first fruits. When we come to our priest, Jesus Christ, what does he ask that we set down before him? Is it a little bit of our cumin and dill that we've got up in our garden or a little bit of our corn? Or No, he says we give ourselves wholly and completely to the Lord to surrender our lives. Lay it down, he says, your whole life to Jesus. But pastor, that's just ridiculous. Why in the world would I give so much to God? Why would I do that? Just had some conversations with some folks recently who were saying, you know, I don't know that I want to do that. I, I kind of want to stay in that middle place. I'm not real sure that I want to get too fanatical about this stuff. Right? Get too over the top with the God thing. Why should I give so much to God? Two reasons. Firstly, because God gave you His first fruits. God did not spare His only Son, but delivered Him over for us all. He offered up His one and only Son upon the altar that we might have life, and that more abundantly. God is not asking anything of you that He has not already required of Himself. And yet for people who did not care for God, sinners. It says in Hebrews 10, 5-7, quoting various places in the Psalms, Jesus says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. And it goes on, In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. Jesus says, Here it is, Lord, Jesus says. Take Me. Take My body, what I am. Use it, I'll lay it down. For these people that you love, God. And because I love you, Lord. He laid it all on the altar. He set it down. Secondly, so the first, first thing, because God gave His first fruits. Right? And in response, we'd say, Lord, you've given everything to me. Why would I not give it to you? Secondly, because there's greater joy in it. And this is the one I really want to emphasize to you this morning, okay? As we enter into the Lent season. Jesus walked the way of the cross because it was a better way. It may not be an attractive or glamorous way or a popular way. Okay? But it's better. Jesus said, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after me. And what will you have? Life. He who loses his life for my sake will gain it, Jesus said, right? It's in losing our lives for Christ that we find it. So the road to the cross is one of self-denial, but it's the road of putting other, others first, and it's the road that Jesus is on. It's the road of life. 
Even nature gives us clues that this is the proper way to life. Sometimes death is necessary for life to happen, right? Jesus said in John 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Death, self-denial is the road that Jesus is on. And one last verse for you here as we close, as we think about this. Peter, the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter he writes this, Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Right, the things of the world, the things that all the world is after that we all desire, these are things that keep you from God. The world, the flesh, and the devil are all screaming at us every day to get more of the world. That, that fulfillment can be found here in this place. But Jesus says, it's not here, people. You can't find it here in this world. And the more you pursue it, what happens? The more it escapes you, does it not? Set it down. Be like Bilbo, right? And drop the ring. You will find, find just as God commanded His people here in Deuteronomy 26, that in laying down what God asks of you, in coming with the first fruits, which in this case are us, our lives, in coming and giving all that we are, you will be free to worship and rejoice. And then like Bilbo, you remember that last part of that, that clip there? What did he say? He said, I've thought of an ending. Gandalf, I've, I've thought of an ending. And they lived happily ever after. Right? That isn't in this life. It's not here, not now. We can be happy in Christ, but the real happy ending is to come. Right? Amen. Let's pray together.